is Fair and Square, a podcast from Hudson Sandler. This is the Fair and Square podcast from Hudson Sandler. I'm Adam Batstone with the latest episode in this podcast series in which I'll be talking to a variety of people from different walks of life who are making a difference in business, science, media, the arts and to the world we live in. This is an opportunity to hear in more depth from those with experience, perspective or opinions that shape contemporary society. Today we're going to turn our attention to sport, but not so much on results, performances and records, but more on the wider topic of sports, finance and governance. And to do that, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Ed Warner. And while Ed's background is in the city, principally in accountancy and financial services, it's his work in sports administration notably as chair of UK Athletics and now head of GB Wheelchair Rugby, that he's probably best known. His 2018 book, Sport Inc., and the blog of the same name, scrutinises the world of sports governance, finance, doping, and even from time to time comments on notable sporting achievements. He writes regularly for the Times newspaper on business and sports issues, And despite his busy work schedule, he found time recently to travel to the Reykjavik Marathon, where he recorded a highly impressive time of 3 hours 27 minutes, which according to marathon analysts is good for age, which to me sounds like faint praise. Ed, good for age, pretty impressive time. Well, I was delighted to do it. I found a marathon as close to my 60th birthday as possible. So I ran it at the age of 60 in two days. Um, so you've got, to, you've got to, it's what's it, marginal gains that Dave Brailsford was always looking for? That was the, the most marginal of gains I could find anywhere in the world. Pretty impressive time, Thank nonetheless. You. Pretty impressive time. Welcome to Fair and Square. And I want to start off, if I can, by asking you about the context in which global sport exists today, which I think, according to you, is really that football and the Olympic Games are the dominant big beasts in sport, and they suck up everything in terms of resources, money, attention, and that means that everyone else is left feeding on scraps. Is that really right when you think of all the other big-ticket sports which uh, get an awful lot of prominence, like golf, for example, or Formula One, or... IPL cricket, but you still think it's football in the Olympic Games, which are the big beasts. They're the sort of platinum level events. And if you talk to sports marketers or commercial agencies, they would have those two in, in an echelon all of their own. The sports that you've just mentioned, we can argue whether F1 is a sport or not. Um, go down the pub and talk about that one for hours. But th- there is that second tier, and they typically are the sort of individual sports, tennis, golf, F1, uh, where you've got Instagram followers numbered in the millions for each of the individual athletes. But every other sport drops a long way below that. So at the point at which we're, we're having this conversation, we're on the cusp of a Rugby World Cup, and anyone who's a rugby fan is getting very excited. Is this going to be the best ever? It's an eight-week eight tournament stretching all the way through the autumn. But actually, on a global basis, the number of eyeballs on that sport will be significantly lower than those other events that we've mentioned and so when it comes to the marketplace you go in the marketplace to try and find sponsors backers yeah anyone prepared to put money into the sport that you're operating in a completely different league if you're not top-end football or you're not the olympics which is this juggernaut that comes around every four years so we can't really talk about anything to do with finance and global sport without making reference to what's been happening 
recently with Saudi Arabia. What is your take in what, on what the Saudis are trying to do? Where, where will this lead us, do you think? I, I think they're here for the long haul. There have been other examples globally of nations that have looked to corner sport or individual sports. So one thinks of the Chinese efforts in the past to get into football, or even going further back, Japan and football, when Gary Lineker went and played over there. Uh, but Saudis are operating a completely different economic model based on their energy wealth. And they can afford to be in for the long haul. The numbers we're talking about for a Mo Salah or you know, name, name any of the big players that have gone over there on Mbappe they were trying to take there are just literal drops of oil in their ocean. And it, people talk about this being sports washing and trying to buff the reputation of the regime. I'm not sure it is that. I think it's a diversification play. Sure, it gives them a, a different image on the global stage. But if you take a very, very long view, Saudi Arabia needs to be more than just oil. So tourism will be a big part of it. Sports tourism will be a big part of it. And I think this only really crystallises, the sports initiative really crystallises when big global sporting events turn up in Saudi Arabia. So we've just talked about the Olympics and football, think the Football World Cup. Yeah, I don't know how long I'm going to live for. Will it be in my lifetime or not? But I think realistically, you could say in the next 20 to 30 years, both of those big events will end up in Saudi Arabia you know, on an air-conditioned basis in a time of year that sort of makes the best of a difficult climate. But that'll be the point at which the Saudis will think they've really achieved. And to me, it's on a, it's on a foreseeable horizon. Do you think the Saudis' interest goes beyond, I mean, we've seen them in, with golf, with the live thing, we're obviously watching it with football at the moment. Do you think their interest extends into other sports as well? But I do wonder whether they might pick some niche sports to make a statement. So one of the things that's been in my mind is disability sport, Paralympic sport, is very, very poor financially mm. relative to able-bodied Olympic sports. And could do with a big injection of cash. The International Paralympic Committee slightly lives hand-to-mouth existence. Mm. Um, could the Saudis step in and have a conversation with them and say, we could be the platform for disability sport, disability awareness, disability rights to be taken somewhere else entirely? Now, you marry that up with any feeling that the Saudis are trying to change their reputation as a nation uh, and, the, and the ruling family there. And that could be very potent a force for change and for good that a lot of those that criticise Saudi Arabia at the moment might struggle to write their next paragraph if they see that sort of investment. My experience, my observations of how business is done as the Middle East, the timeframes are long, the decision-making process is often very extended, and I suspect there's a lot of debates going on at the moment with a, a load of consultancy firms piling into Saudi to give them that advice that may not come to fruition for two, three, four, five years. And when they arrive, we'll all think, where did that come from? And maybe it's it, it's coming from now, but it's going to take a while till we see the outcome. You, you've talked there about disability sport. Obviously, as I mentioned, that's been your background, currently wheelchair rugby, and before that with the Paralympics. Do you think fundamentally what's required is a sort of change in attitude among the way spectators and people engage with we see these peaks and spikes of interest around the Paralympics and then it seems to tail off. What accounts for that? What needs to be done to try and generate more interest? Because ultimately, that's the reason why people want to put money into something. And that, look, that, you're right. And that's the challenge that I face as chair of British Wheelchair Rugby. I think it's the challenge that all the Paralympic sports face 
both in Britain and, and internationally. And it's not the fault of the fans or the spectators or the general public. It's our fault for not finding the key to unlock the door to consistent interest in the sport. So when London 2012 came around, Britain fell in love with Paralympic athletics. Uh, sorry, Paralympic sport. I think athletics mm. in particular, so where I was working at the time. And we all got very excited by that. But that's faded very quickly. I mean, I tried to sell tickets to Paralympic athletics in the years after London 2012. It was really hard. And you thought, well, hang on, there were millions of people engaged with Paralympic sport in London in 2012. Where have they all gone? Well, they've moved on to the next sporting jamboree that's come along. I can't blame them for having short attention spans. I can't blame them for being what the industry calls big eventers, mm. um, falling in love with the, the, the whole hoopla of, of a massive event. Um, we have to find ways to engage them in between times. And so often disability sport doesn't have a narrative. It hasn't got this sort of season round. You can't follow a league. You can't follow a team. You can't follow a, a story of competition. And unless Paralympic sport collectively finds that story, or unless individual Paralympic sports find that narrative, it will only be once every four years. And every four years, we'll have to reset interest in disability sport. Do you think there's a kind of an issue, a problem, about the kind of people who are making those decisions and running sport that, you know, a lot of the time you've got people involved at senior positions who are enthusiasts maybe, but lack the experience or the skills to be able to kind of take it to that next level that you've just been talking about? Yes, I think there's a collision sometimes, often, between the professional staffers who are you know, paid a sensible salary maybe with a bonus to run a sport, deliver a sport, and those that sit above them on boards and govern them. And look, let's face it, back in 2007, when I started at UK Athletics as the chair, um, I was an enthusiastic amateur, a businessman who was a member of a running club and was in a sweet spot when they were looking for a chair between understanding business and understanding athletics. But I wasn't an elite athlete. I hadn't been a a volunteer for years, I hadn't been a technical official, you know, I hadn't been a coach. And I learned on the job and there was no one to teach me. And I don't think for many sports that that situation has changed or got any better. And I look at many governing bodies boards and they're made up of a combination of elected members of the sport who've been steeped in it for many years, maybe they're former elite athletes, very amateurish, um, not in a, in a willfully negative way, just happen, they don't have the experience sitting on a board, and a bunch often of appointed non-executives who some of them are there because they think there's going to be some glory in being associated with a big sport, but what do they know about it? They may never even have been to watch it. Or some non-execs who are so enthusiastic as fans that they leave their business head at the door. And those become pretty unstable, unproductive, difficult boards for an executive professional to, to manage from below and deal with. And not every chief executive in sports great at their job, of course they're not, but I see many who are frustrated, find the job almost impossible, feel they're got at from all sides, and struggle to deal with a sense of entitlement amongst those volunteer boards who, um, you know, I'm there because I've got the blazer that means I've been... I remember Will Carning talking about the 57 farms mm, on the RFU mm. Council. Well, the RFU Council 
hasn't changed a lot since then, structurally. And if you meet many council members, each as individuals are great, but you put them all in a room collectively and ask them to make some really important decisions for rugby, and it becomes dysfunctional. So somehow that we have to find a way through that, and sports had to become more professional, and I don't mean that in the sense that they're all unprofessional, just that the standards that we hold PLC boards to need to be applied to sport, and sport will be much richer for it. I mean, you could, you know, looking back, you can look at what happened with football in this country, where arguably in the 1980s, football was in a mess uh, for various reasons, political, social, economic. And then the Premier League came along and, and sort of totally reinvented the model and created a new product and lots of excitement. And you now look at the money which um, is generated. And that's, that's an interesting case study. I guess the question is, to what extent is that likely to be repeated elsewhere? Was that a one-off because football was already had the kind of the potential to be so popular? It clearly had the potential. It clearly had the potential. And the the Premier League has done some amazing things in um, promoting the game, organising promoting the game, whatever one thinks of it. I think if you, if you look at the structure of the governance of the Premier League, you wouldn't want to apply that anywhere else because each of the 20 teams has a representative at the table. There's all sorts of voting requirements for things to go through. 14 clubs need to agree, etc., etc. And that, you could say, is a recipe for dysfunction. But it seems to work. I think it works because the 20 people at the table, whatever one thinks sometimes of their where they got their money from and the background of the ownership of the individual clubs, are high-grade individuals. Mm. And that's a sort of natural selection almost. These These have become such big corporate vehicles, each of those 20 clubs, that almost by definition, pretty decent leaders are leading those clubs. And therefore, when they're at the table, um, they understand the dynamic of, of the product that they're trying to develop. And they give a chief executive their head and mm. allow them to get on and, and monetize. If you compare that with the EFL, so the Football League, mm. um, where you've got a similar structure of a board which is composed of representatives of clubs from each of the, the divisions, it's the clubs themselves are not yet operating at the level of the Premier League clubs and therefore possibly the calibre of the people isn't quite up there and then possibly the EFL isn't as dynamic, well-run, uh, progressive as it might be, as the Premier League is. And so I think it's a... To, look, my, the the, the strapline of my book underneath Sporting was why money is the winner in the business of sport. And so I think the calibre of leadership of the Premier League reflects the money that's in each of those clubs and therefore high-calibre people end up running them. So, talking about the influence of television, which has obviously been really important, and we t- we're talking a moment ago about the Premier League and, of course, Sky Sports and the way they managed and partnered, essentially, with the Premier League to, to make it so popular. In, in a world where, technologically, there are so many options for watching sport, whether that's terrestrial television to stream, paper, broadcast, Amazon, whatever it might be. Do you see the potential, because of this multiplicity of channels, for those channels to start looking beyond the reliable, trusted sports and thinking, actually, you know what, we can, we can generate interest around this previously niche sport and make it a, big, a bigger thing. Can they drive the attention to a degree? Look, in theory they could, but it's hard yards 
it's easier to buy the rights for cricket, football, rugby, and broadcast it well than to build an audience almost from scratch. I'll tell you one person who has built an audience from scratch using the power of television is Barry Hearn or Barry and Eddie Hearn. Um, Well, Barry will tell you all about fly fishing uh, (laughs) as well as snooker and darts. Yeah, they've they've been really innovative in the way they've presented effectively pub sports. Uh, I'm not including fly fishing in that. But um, and if you listen to Barry Hearn talk about how he went about that, it's revelatory. Just listen to them talking about it. It's it's completely fascinating and I think very enriching and there's quite a lot of snobbery around the Hearn sports in the sporting fraternity and people need to leave that snobbery at the door and listen and watch what they've done. So yes, it can be done, but I, you know, to the ECB's credit, I don't like the outcome product, the 100, but some people do, not for me, but to their credit, they worked with television to create that format of cricket. And they listen to TV say it needs to be shorter, it needs to be jazzier, it needs to be easier to understand, more accessible. Um, they themselves identified families as an audience that they weren't reaching and you know, structured it all accordingly. There aren't many examples of sport genuinely embracing the needs of television as opposed to turning to television saying, this is our product, do you want it? Here's the price. And I think those collaborative experiences are can be really fruitful. I, I look at yeah, even something as, as niche as wheelchair rugby, massively mm-hmm. niche sport. We're thinking about that sort of collaboration all the time. What, what is it that makes an event attractive to those in an arena and on television? How do you differentiate it? What makes it appealing? And so often you've got to drag yourself away from the conventions of the sport, which the traditionalists love, but effectively building a wall around the sport and not letting any new ones in mm. because you don't understand, you mm. don't get it, you know, you don't, you're not steeped in our, in our history. And for sports to break out, they need to, to break down those barriers and they need to open up to new audiences and fresh thinking is, is critical. So if we kind of look at a slightly different issue, which is sort of where we've got sports which haven't got the big revenue from television where it might be, so... For example, in athletics, where, as I understand it, athletes tend to rely on UK sport, which is a sort of government agency for funding elite athletes. Do you worry that that focus on you know, winning at all costs, for want of a better phrase, brings with it associated risks around you know, the inclination for people to take performance-enhancing drugs or to stifle the ambitions of other sports people and, and minority sports who, who are just deemed by civil servants not to have a, a chance? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I've spoken out against this quite loudly on a number of occasions. I don't, I don't think it's about the need to fund passengers on a team or people who will always be also rans. It's about being open-minded and having a longer horizon about which people might come through and have genuine potential. And if you do the winning at all cost thing, you end up in getting quite short-termist, only looking at the next Olympic Games or Paralympic Games, and only backing those you really think can make, make it onto the podium, realistic chance of doing that next time. And the conveyor belt of, of developing talent for any sport is a long one. And that's why you see... 
Premier League football clubs signing up kids in their you know, pre-teenage years to, to join academies. So you've got to take a long view. Also, there is a risk, and I think you've just alluded to that, of if, if, the, if, if it's getting through the eye of a needle to get funding, then the temptation to cut corners to just to make the difference to be on the right side of the funding line uh, gets magnified. Mm-hmm. And listen to Dwayne Chambers read his book, um, obviously caught for flagrant um, doping abuse. Yeah, he said that the, the thought whispering through his head was everybody else in the start line is doing it, therefore I have to to compete. Now that may be absolute nonsense, but you get it in your head that it's an uneven playing field and that's a way to level it up. And the difference between, between being a have and a have not is enormous financially. That temptation is huge and, and people are only human. And so I, I think I've never had sympathy for those caught cheating in sport in terms of them being deserving to be banned, ostracised, long bans, etc., etc. Uh, don't be overly lenient. However, I can be sympathetic with regard to understanding how they got to that position. You talk about the being able to understand the perspective and decision-making, however wrong it might be, on the part of individuals who don't see an alternative. Do you think or do you worry that among those who are governing sports, while they might say that they are opposed to doping or cheating, that there's almost a kind of tacit reluctance to ask the kind of questions or impose a sort of environment which makes it hard? I think, you know, your own experience with UK athletics, there were questions asked about Mo Farah and his experience. What was your experience in that situation? It was really difficult. I think... First point to make is you can't generalise about the stringency of anti-doping vigilance, if you like, amongst governing bodies and individual people, because it does differ from person to person and sports body to sports body. And yeah, I've never worked at British Cycling. I know nothing other than what I read and observe from the outside. But right now, we might say that for all their protestations years ago of being you know, massively um, you know, zero tolerance, Maybe they weren't zero tolerance. Certainly, the, the, the sort of no smoke without fire would suggest that they weren't as as tough as they said they were. Uh, but maybe they're tougher now, and the whole leadership has changed. So it does rotate around. You can't generalise. Um, the really difficult thing is that proof, the uh, the need for someone to be innocent till proven guilty as well, are really important tenets, and holding to them often in a blizzard of media scrutiny, publicity, noise, is tricky. So if I go back to the Mo Farah situation, which absorbed huge amounts of my time and our board's time once the Panorama programme came out Mm. suggesting that Mo's coach was a cheat, um, I sat down with Mo in a hotel room in Beijing the day after his last competition in the 2015 World Athletics Championships and said to him, look, Mo... Is it right for you to be sticking by your coach, Alberto Salazar, who at the time was innocent, you know, allegations but no proof? Um, what is this doing for your, your own reputation? And what risk are you running here? We as a governing body have to stand by innocent until proven guilty, but we're worried about the risk of association for you and by extension for us and for the sport. And Mo very firmly replied to me that, his coach was innocent until proven guilty. He'd seen nothing wrong. And this staying with Alberto maximised his chances of winning medals in future. 
as I say, I took that response of no back to our board. We debated it at length and came to the conclusion that we had to minimise the risk, but we had to stand by innocent until proven guilty. So Mo was being coached by Alberto, but we made it clear we wouldn't countenance any other athlete going to be coached by him, and then we'd abide by whatever outcome there was. But we'd had the conversation with Mo, we looked him in the eye, we said, yeah, you have to understand your own personal risk here. And the coach-athlete relationship is a very personal one. Mo made that decision. But it made life very difficult. The easiest thing would have been, and Mo said, I don't want to take that risk. I'll move coach and our life would have been easier. Um, so there has to be a process of law, investigation. And so all along in these things, I've stood by the view that we should root out cheats. We, should, we shouldn't be lenient when they are discovered to have cheated. We should understand the human aspects of why they might have got to where they've got to. But we shouldn't shoot from the hip. We need to think about the important issue around women's sport. We've talked about para-sport, we've talked about dominant sports, whether that's football or Olympics, etc. But we want to think about women's sport as well. Obviously, we've had the Women's World Cup this summer, which has been, I think, by most people's judgment, a successful event. Where, where does it go? Is it a different set of issues around women's sport than it is for um, you know, minority and elite sports? No, I, I think women's sport still needs to have some degree of mindset that it is a minority still, because if it has that, it will continue to strive, be ambitious, um, not act in an entitled fashion, which might mean it gets lazy at the margins. And so women's football now trumps many other established male-slash-female sports. Yeah, athletics would be a good example, viewing figures, interest, money. And it's, it feels like it's come from nowhere to do that in the last few years, but of course it hasn't. Women's football's been around for much longer, and it's been a slow burn and then a hockey stick recently. Mm. I'd like to think the women's game will be brave enough and stand more independently because there's something quite distinctive about its product at the moment in terms of you know fandom the atmosphere of the game yet money's no bad thing money is the winner in the business of sport and we're not going to get away from that but a get rich quick mentality might mean too many compromises are made and the game will the women's game might forever be seen as just a tag along for the men's and I, I think it has the capability to be something bigger and different than that. Now, you can't translate that to every women's team sport. So sports have to be realistic. Women's sport has to be realistic. Football has the best chance, clearly. And you know, long may that continue because I think the, the standard of the game um, has come on leaps and bounds. And I don't just mean what's on the pitch. I mean how it's presented, how it's followed, how it's written about. Um, cricket has that opportunity. But again, cricket has the challenge of are enough boys playing cricket outside the private school system? And, yeah. and that's the other thing. The great thing about the women's ashes was every match mattered. I'm not sure yet every match matters in the women's 100, but that's the challenge for the men's 100 too. So you've got to move these sports, any sport, to why does it matter? And, the narrative and that you were talking about earlier. Completely. Yeah. And the question, again, we ask ourselves all the time in all the sports I've worked in is if we're going to put this event on, how do we articulate why it matters? Well, we're not, sorry, number one, does it matter? Or is it just a, sh a showpiece? And then how do we articulate that? And you've seen that things like that ATP event at the end of um, each season. They used to have it in the O2. Yeah. yeah. And they had to work really hard to make that feel like it mattered. I think they sort of got there in the end. 
But early on, the players were like, you know. It's an exhibition game. Yeah, yeah. there's some money. Yeah. But yeah, it's a bit like they tennis they used to stick in the Albert Hall and you know, so what. And it's harder. To, I know from experience, it's much harder to sell tickets for that than it is for something where you can see the, the continuity of the story. When you were talking a moment ago about women's football, you described it as having a, a hockey stick effect where at one point suddenly it became a lot bigger than it had been. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that there was a, a point there. What, what was that point? What, what were the circumstances? And is that something which could be captured and replicated elsewhere? There's some alchemy to that, isn't there? And there's some mystique, um, mystery, uh, how do you capture it and bottle it? So from an English perspective, clearly that Euro's triumph was a, a really big inflection point. Just so I think actually for women's rugby, that 2025 could be. But what about the rest of the world? Football, clearly the rest of the world has got it. And yeah, maybe that um, yeah, shocking behaviour by the leader of the, the Spanish FA is... It almost in a way helps. I mean, it's completely overshadowed the Spanish triumph, but it's got people talking about broader societal issues around women's football that I think won't, in the long term, do women's football any harm at all um, because it's cemented its importance, its seriousness, in a way that yeah, maybe the Spanish triumph would have been a bit fleeting because we move on to the next sporting thing we're watching. Um, but this will be remembered. And one of the things that will be remembered isn't just his behaviour on a po- on a platform. It's actually, it opened up the whole story of the Spanish team's struggle to be recognised within Spanish football establishment and the rebellion by the players. And there's a whole story there. There'll be a Hollywood film about it, you know, mm-hmm. there will in a few years' time. And that won't do any harm. So... It's interesting, isn't it, that we, you know, we've talked at some length about all these different sports and what, what's the right policy and government involvement and financing, etc. But you know, there'd be a lot of people listening to this who would just say that you know, sport ultimately is it's just an entertainment. You know, people don't, it's not a life or death thing. And you know, if you look at uh, Hollywood or other branches of the entertainment industry. If they make a dud film, which no one goes to watch, it's tough. You know, they don't get any public bailout or anything like that. It's just they need to up their game and make something better. So isn't that equally true of sport, that you, you can't have special pleading? It just sport needs to be good, entertaining, interesting for it to be relevant. And if it, if, if it isn't, then that's just, that's just tough. In, in some way, I agree. I mean, Bill Shankney would clearly disagree with you, cause, um, <laughs> certainly about football, but we'll leave, we'll leave that to the late Bill. The, if, if sport was entirely a sedentary exercise, then I would completely agree with you. Sport, however, still has that ability to provide some inspiration to young people, particularly, to get off their sofa and be active. Um, we do get uplifted watching the Olympics and Paralympics when British athletes win medals. And so we're banking here with sport, unlike Tom Cruise in, a, in Top Gun 2, in there being some direct impact on the, the way that people live their lives from understanding, seeing, engaging in elite sport that will be, lead to a healthier nation. And 
we spend so much on the National Health Service, we're not alone globally in doing that, compared to what's spent on direct investment in sport, and yet the benefits of a healthier nation in reducing a health budget um, can be significant, that even diverting a small amount of cash one to the other, from the big to the small, could reap significant financial benefits. So I'm all for defending investment in sport. The question you then run into, to get really technical on it, is what's the division between spending on grassroots sport and our elite athletes? And what is the inspiration impact of Mo Farah, Jessica Ennis, um, you know, Josh Kerr, whoever, um, winning a gold medal? And we just don't know. And we ask ourselves that question. So f- finding that balance... And I suspect that you need to do something at the elite end to help burnish the investment you put in at the grassroots. But ultimately, if you said to me, I've got a pound to spend on grassroots and a pound to spend on the next Mo Farah, I'll spend it on grassroots. Because the next Mo Farah, if he's that good, will Mm -hmm. find a contract from Nike. Whereas often that pound into grassroots, if that isn't found, there will be no outdoor gym in that deprived neighbourhood. There will be no 3G football pitch that people can use 365 days of the year. Uh, and those are, those are very important. So on that note, Ed, in which we all of us have got our own personal dreams of a sporting nature, whether that's getting down to, uh, I don't know what your aspiration is on the marathon. For me, it's be single-figure golf handicap. But anyway, thanks very much indeed to Ed for your time and for your knowledge, wisdom. And for listeners who are interested in this topic and what Ed has to say, I would definitely point in the direction of his blog, that's Sport Inc., which you can find... Who else yeah, you'll find... find go, go to the Substack, Substack website. It's one of those Substack. Very good, very centers. good. The link will be on the show notes which accompanies this episode. And there you'll also find links to other episodes of the Fair and Square podcast. And you'll find more information about Hudson Sandler's work in the UK and around the world. And you can also follow Hudson Sandler on Twitter or X, as I believe we should be referring to it now, at Hudson Sandler. But until the next episode from me, Adam Batstone, goodbye for now. To find out more about Hudson Sandler, our team, our culture and our thinking, visit our website, hudsonsandler.com.